As is our tradition in our worship experience, if you're able to stand, uh, we invite you to stand now for the reading from God's holy word. And we're reading again today during this Lenten season from the book of Job, from one who knew great suffering himself. I'm reading today from Job chapter 19, verses 13 through 27. Hear the word of God. He has put my family far from me, and my acquaintances are wholly estranged from me. My relatives and my close friends have failed me. The guests in my own house have forgotten me. My serving girls count me as a stranger. I have become an alien in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must myself plead with him. My breath is repulsive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own family. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones cling to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, have pity on me, O you, my friends. For the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me, never satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written down. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and with lead, they were engraved on a rock forever. But I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand in the ashes, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see on my side, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, today brings new meaning to preaching to the choir. Uh, We are grateful for the choir and for the musicians, the praise team. Uh, We have incorporated elements both from modern and traditional worship in our music, and we're grateful to all of you, and especially to those of you at home who are part of this worship time with us. If you have worshiped here at Brentwood over the last couple of weeks during the Lenten season since Ash Wednesday, Uh, you know that we've been involved in a series on Job called Why Me? Now, obviously, when we planned this series over a year ago, no one could have imagined the situation that we find ourselves in today. And so it seems to me a very timely series. The book of Job concerns the existential question that every one of us ask in times of difficulty, in times of trial and hardship. It's a universal question, and yet at the same time, it's intensely personal. The question is, why me? Why us? Why this? Why now? Job embodies the classic Jewish theme of the victim, Indeed, he is the voice of moral outrage. In fact, I think that Job is the voice of every man, every woman who knows disappointment, who knows calamity, who knows crisis and discouragement. 
Last week we left off in Job 2 and 3 where this suffering servant was on the ash heap. He found himself outside the city limits, somewhat quarantined where outcasts and sick folk gathered. He had lost everything. He lost his home. He lost his retirement. He lost his cattle, his sheep, his money, his kids, and his health. And yet he was not alone. Apparently, his small group, he was a part of a small group of men, showed up, namely Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And when they saw their friend, they were absolutely shocked. Apparently, he had suffered so greatly that his demeanor, his countenance had changed. They did what folks would customarily do in situations of sorrow and grief. They, they raised their voices, they cried aloud, they, they rent their garments, and they threw dust on their heads. And then in an act of solidarity, in an act of deep compassion, they sat down with their friend in utter silence, and nobody said a word for seven days and seven nights. Maybe you've discovered, as have I, that sometimes in the face of great suffering, the most fluent language is body language, a, a sympathetic tear, a hand to hold, a shoulder to lean on, a neck to hug, just, just silent presence. I think one of the great difficulties of this global pandemic is social distancing, and especially in the church, especially in the faith community where human touch is really sacramental among us. I don't know about you, but I'm a hugger. I'm kind of a touchy-feely person, and it's very difficult in a, in a church, in a faith community where passing of the peace and the holy kiss and all of these things are so critical to us. Social distancing is necessary today across the land to mitigate the spread of the virus and this is why we're streaming today. But social distancing does not mean spiritual distancing. If you could be where I sit today, you would see that the pews are empty, but our souls are full. We can still be spiritually present even when we're distant. We can do it through a phone call. We can do it through a prayer. We can do it through intercession. We can do it through a song. We can do it through a text or a card. We can even do it this morning through streaming worship. And so the truth is, even when we're socially distant, we perhaps have never been more spiritually present than this day to God, to each other, to our neighbor. I've been thinking about Bishop Pennell, Joe Pennell, I met with him this week. He pastored this church before he was elected to the Episcopal office in 1996. He pastored here for eight years. He's written a little book that I referenced this week called The Ministry of Presence. And this is what Bishop Pennell writes. Ministering to those who are suffering does not mean that we understand all there is to know about suffering or that we have all the answers. We don't. Suffering is, at best, an intangible mystery. We're called to be present to those who suffer so that they might not suffer alone. We offer those who are hurting a sacred gift when we agree to be present in their pain. 
being with them in meaningful ways can provide a source of safety and comfort, but it's also a gift to us because it is in such moments that we ourselves experience the holy. What my friend Joe Pennell is saying is that social distancing does not mean spiritual absence. In this story, the story of Job, the quiet presence of friends was a consolation to Job. But after seven days, after a week of silence, they broke the silence. They apparently felt the need to explain his suffering. And at this point, the comfort ends, and so does the friendship. These three, using the conventional theology of their day, which we call double retribution, they said, in effect, that Job, your suffering is because of your own sin. Now, as you can imagine, this kind of counsel not only deepened Job's pain, but it completely alienated him the more. In the ensuing chapters, Job 4 through 35, these friends continue to share their theories explaining suffering, and each soliloquy is followed by a rebuttal from Job. Job maintains his faith, his innocence, his integrity. But then in chapter 19, which we just read, after a rather graphic lament, Job has a moment of clarity. In the midst of his deep suffering on the ash heap, he offers what I think is the greatest confession of faith in the Hebrew Scripture. Verses 25 and 26. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand in the dust with me. Even after my skin is destroyed in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I will see him face to face and he won't be a stranger to me. What a confession. And we've all heard stories where somebody in crisis was blessed with superhuman strength, right? Where someone was momentarily enabled to accomplish an incredible feat beyond their physical or natural ability. The Bible is full of these stories. Moses parted the Red Sea. David slew a giant. Jesus calmed the storm. Peter walked on water. We've seen it in the Bible. We've seen it in the world of sports. We've seen it on the ball field, on the court, on the diamond, where in some clutch moment, somebody steps up and just absolutely outdoes themselves. It happened a while back in Atlanta, in a community where Sherry and I were serving. On a good Friday afternoon in April, Angela Cavallo was in her kitchen preparing food for Easter Sunday while her son Tony was in the driveway working on a car. He loved to tinker with cars. He had used the jack to lift the car, and he was underneath working on the suspension when suddenly the jack slipped and the rear wheel base pinned Tony to the ground. The pain was excruciating, so much so that he lost consciousness. A neighbor boy across the street saw it. He ran through the Cavallo kitchen door without knocking, and Mrs. Cavallo was notified as to what had happened. She dropped everything. She ran outside, and there was her son trapped underneath the car, unresponsive. 
She tried kicking the wheelbase to move it to no avail. And then she did something that was miraculous. She steadied her body beneath the wheel, all the while praying to God, and she lifted that car off the ground, four inches off the ground, freeing her boy. They rushed him to the hospital, unsure if he would make it, but on the third day, Easter Sunday afternoon, he was seated at his table eating Easter Sunday dinner. I asked Mrs. Cavallo, how did you do it? And she said, well, a lot of people say it was adrenaline. I said, what do you say? She said, I say it was God. In that moment, she said, God gave me strength of Samson in a moment of need. And God enabled me to outdo myself. What happened to Mrs. Cavallo happened to Job on an ash heap in a whirlwind in the face of an impossible dilemma. He was given a strength to outdo himself, to declare in the dust, I know that my Redeemer lives and he will be with me in the ashes. He will rush to my defense and vindicate me. Now, it's interesting to me that in that text, the word for redeemer in the Hebrew is goel, G-O-E-L, goel. It literally means kinsman. In the ancient Israelite culture, the goel was the next of kin to one who had recently deceased. And so it was the goel's job to defend the honor of a relative who could no longer defend himself. Job, in a near-death dilemma, is appealing in this passage to a kinsman to defend his honor. But the unusual thing is that he has no human kinsman. All his heirs were lost in the whirlwind. The kids are gone, and even the relatives have deserted him. And the Scripture says that even Mrs. Job had counseled him to curse God and die. But in this incredible surge of faith... Job envisions a divine kinsman who will rise to justify and uphold his name. I submit that this Goel is none other than God himself. Listen to the confession again, verse 26. After my skin is destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God with my own eyes. That sounds like a contradiction to me because how can you see God after your skin is destroyed? But this is no contradiction. It's a resurrection. The funny thing is, at the time that Job was written in the 6th century B.C. or thereabout, there was absolutely no concept of resurrection. If you died, you went to Sheol, the place of shadows, until this confession What's he doing? He's outdoing himself. In a moment of epiphany, a revelation, a burst of insight, he sees what others cannot see or imagine. Job's confession is a premonition of the incarnation. 
of the gospel story of God in Christ, of the crucified and resurrected one to come, Jesus will become our kinsman, our Goel, our Redeemer. George Frederick Handel believed this too, and that's why he put this verse, chapter 19, verse 26, to music in his sacred oratorio called The Messiah, because he saw this kinsman as a precursor to the living Christ. And don't you love Job's passion? He doesn't say, I think my Redeemer lives. I hope, I wish. He says, I know he lives. I know. Reminds me of another confession in 2 Timothy 1.12, where just before the Apostle Paul was executed because of his faith in Jesus he outdid himself. In his chains, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because I know in whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. God outdid himself in Paul. Charles Wesley, the brother to John, our spiritual founder, wrote in his own confession of faith in poetic ways that was put to music, ask ye what great thing I know that delights and charms me so, what the high reward I win, who's the name I glory in, Jesus Christ the crucified. Charles Wesley, when he wrote those words, outdid himself. When life seems questionable, uncertain, up in the air, when life is up for grabs, there are some things that we can know. We have a divine kinsman, we have a goel who stands with us in the whirlwind and we will see him face to face. That kind of knowledge doesn't come through human wisdom. It doesn't come through intellect or insight. It comes through revelation and we often discover it best, not in the absence of suffering, but right in the midst of suffering. Last word. I, I shared a picture in my sermon last week on Job of East End United Methodist Church. I have another picture today. You can see the damage that was done through the whirlwind just a week ago last Tuesday. This is one of our United Methodist churches where Judy Hoffman and Amanda Diamond are co-pastors, and many of us have visited with them. In fact, uh, Reverend Toy King on Friday of this week took handwritten notes that some of you have actually written to the members of that church, and Amanda is giving them out today to our friends in that community. Reverend Hoffman told me that on the day after the twister, she walked over to the church to see what was left. She said the wind tore off a part of the roof of the sanctuary, which was directly over the chancel. I saw it with my own eyes. The organ and the pipes were a complete loss. They're going to have to tear down what's left of the sanctuary and start all over again. Judy said, I went over to the church to see what was left. On Tuesday morning, I climbed up into the pulpit it was still there, still in the chancel. And she said, would you believe that the pulpit Bible was still there 
unfazed, undisturbed, and it was opened to Micah chapter 7, verse 7 and 8. I looked it up. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior, and my God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy, for though I have fallen, I will rise, and though I sit in darkness, the Lord is my light. Well, I don't have to tell you that for Judy Huffman, that was a revelation. There are 31,102 verses of Scripture in your Bible, but on Tuesday morning at East End United Methodist Church, it just so happened to be opened to that verse. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I now sit in darkness, the Lord is my light. Friends, I'm telling you today that there are some things you can bank on because you know Jesus loves me this I know I know that my Redeemer lives and that he'll stand with me I'll see him face to face and he won't be a stranger to me in a world of hurt in a time of sudden twists and turns even in a global pandemic his presence is our strength. This we know. And we have the privilege of conveying that strength to others so that Christ in us might actually outdo himself in loving service. I don't know where you are this morning. I have a feeling that you may be feeling a little distant. But the good news of the gospel is that we have a kinsman. We have a redeemer who has bridged the distance. And my prayer for you and for us is that you would know, that you would know the nearness of God's presence in these days and that you might be a bridge to somebody else so that Christ will not be a stranger to anyone. In Jesus' name, amen.